the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Enjoy. The following program is sponsored by the National Strikes and protests are being held on the Greek islands over the government's handling of migrants arriving from Turkey. The North Aegean islands have been struggling to cope with an influx of migrants for the past five years. More than 40,000 people are housed in camps awaiting a decision on their asylum applications. The most notorious, the former prison at Moria on Lesbos, is holding 19,000 people, six times more than it was designed for. Conditions are wretched. Protesters want to speed up transfers to the mainland. They also object to the government's proposal to build five large detention centres on the islands. They plan to take the protest to Athens on Thursday. BBC correspondent Mike Sanders. France's finance minister says his country will delay its digital tax and the U.S. will hold off on retaliatory sanctions. The agreement could avert a new trade skirmish between the U.S. and the European Union over the lucrative high-tech market. Breaking news and analysis at townhall.com. General Motors' self-driving car company will attempt to deliver on its long-running promise to provide more environmentally friendly ride-hailing services. It includes an unorthodox vehicle designed to eliminate the need for human operators to transport people around crowded cities. The service still being developed by GM's cruise subsidiary will rely on a boxy electric-powered vehicle called Origin that was unveiled this week in San Francisco amid much fanfare. It looks like a cross between a minivan and sport utility vehicle with one huge exception. It won't have any steering wheel or brakes. Correspondent one Jeremy House reporting the Origin will accommodate up to four passengers at a time, although it's... Details uh, given when it will be available, however. More on these stories at townhall.com.
Can a person be saved? Can a person receive eternal life if he does not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? In other words, is obedience necessary for salvation and the forgiveness of sins? I hear such absolutely contrary comments and you can go on the internet and just Google obedience necessary for salvation and you'll come up with very different answers. One Bible commentator commentator, wrote this. The blessings of God are dependent upon obedience. You'll listen to Charles Stanley and he will say that. You'll listen to others. Almost every broadcaster on WAVA, AM, and FM will teach this same principle. He goes on, Israel, to be immune from disease of Egypt only so long as they hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord their God and did what was right in his sight. But let us be clear on the point. The keeping of God's commandments has nothing to do with our salvation. Israel here, already they were under the blood and had been typically brought through death onto resurrection ground. Yet now the Lord reminds them of his commandments and statutes. How far wrong then are they who contend that the law has nothing to do with Christians. True, it has nothing to do with salvation. But it is needful for the regulation of their walk. Believers equally with unbelievers are subject to God's government. Failure to recognize this, failure to conform our daily lives to God's statutes, failure to obey His commandments, will not forfeit our salvation, but it will bring down upon us the chastising plagues of our righteous Father. Is he right? Is Charles Stanley right when he says that the only thing you will lose are some rewards when you arrive in heaven because each will be rewarded according to what they have done? That's what the scriptures teach us. So, is obedience necessary for salvation? All would agree that obedience is necessary for fellowship with God. All would agree that obedience is necessary for the blessing of God. But the Christian world is totally divided over the question, is obedience necessary for salvation? I'd like to look at just a couple of passages of Scripture with you. And then we're going to go back and look at what the children of Israel learned about this question. And I want to say unequivocally, up front, obedience is necessary for salvation. Now your salvation does not come 
through works. Your salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. He gives to you then the gift of righteousness. But it's real righteousness. It's not imputed righteousness. And His grace and His mercy, they are awesome. But they are meant to bring us into conformity to His will. So let me just read a couple of very familiar passages to you to let you know I stand only on the Word of God. I do not stand on the traditions of man or the teachings of man, especially John Calvin and his followers. I believe they are utterly deceiving the church. And they are causing many to be lost. Jesus, in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, I'll read first, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone saying to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of the heavens, but the one that keeps on doing the will of my Father in the heavens. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, did we not? And in your name we cast out demons, and in your name we did many deeds of power. Did we not? But then I will plainly assure them, I do not recognize you. You must depart from me, the ones working iniquity or lawless deeds. So Jesus is very clear in this passage of Scripture that obedience is necessary and that those who work in the gospel, who preach and teach, but who do not obey the word of the Lord are not going to just lose some rewards. They're going to lose their eternal salvation. For Jesus will say to them, I don't know you. You worker of iniquity. You worker of lawless deeds. Now, let me share another passage with you. It's found in Romans. You might want to read the entire sixth chapter of Romans again. But let me begin with verse 15. This is Romans 6, beginning with verse 15. What then? Shall we sin even once hereafter? Because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you yield yourselves as servants to obey, you are servants to whom you obey, whether of sin in death or of obedience in righteousness? But thanks be to God, because you used to be servants of sin, but you obeyed out from the heart a standard of teaching under which you were delivered, and having been freed from sin, you were made servants with reference to righteousness. And of course that word righteousness in the Greek is dikasune, 
meaning innocence. You were made servants with reference to innocence, not to breaking the commands of Jesus. Now there's another passage of Scripture, and there's so many I could turn to, but please, just three or four to give you a flavor. In Hebrews, the fifth chapter, speaking about Jesus, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And after having been made perfect, or that is, after having been made completely mature, he became the source of eternal salvation to all the ones obeying him having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's saying, the ones who obey Jesus are the ones who are going to enter into eternal salvation. Now, one more New Testament passage. This is 1 Peter. 1 Peter, the first chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience of the truth through the Spirit, in unhypocritical love, you must love one another out of a pure heart constantly, having been born again not out of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the living Word of God, ever abiding forever. Your souls have been purified by obedience. In other words, as you obey the commands of the Lord, as you agree with Him, and you do what He asks you to do, you're purified. You're made clean. Now, I share those passages of Scripture with you to be unequivocal. We are not saved by obedience but we are lost by disobedience we are not saved by obedience but we are lost by disobedience welcome to pilgrim's progress i'm eager for you today to hear and understand one of the ways of god It's found throughout all of the scriptures, this basic biblical teaching that to be saved is to be saved from sin. Now, a man said to me yesterday, you know, I'm always making mistakes. And God's mercy, he covers me. This man is correct. I was grateful he did not say, I am always sinning, and God's grace covers me. God's grace will not cover your sin. Grace is meant to remove your sin by the blood of Jesus. Now, John Wesley taught very clearly 
what the scriptures teach in 1 John, and that is that sin is volitional. That is, sin is a voluntary act on the part of a person who rebels against Jesus and who says to him, no, I will not obey. I will do what I want to do. That is sin. And then the man comes to me and he says, Ray, you're crazy. You sin all the time. If you don't sin by what you don't do, you sin by what you do do. Sorry, he's wrong. That's not true. The classical Greek definition of harmatia is that when you shoot the arrow at the target and you miss the target, or you don't hit the bullseye, you have missed the mark. And they call that sin in classical Greek. But that's not the definition of sin in the New Testament. Harmatia is given a very specific meaning in the New Testament. And that meaning is that I voluntarily rebel, act in a lawless manner. When you act in a lawless manner, Jesus said, I'm going to say to you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or iniquity. That is, depart from me, those of you who voluntarily give yourself to wickedness. The Holy Spirit has said to you, don't touch that anymore. And you say, there's nothing wrong with that. I can do that. That's not a problem. Wasn't that the sin of Eve in the garden when she said, you know, I can eat that fruit. Come on, it's not such a big deal. I want to be able to determine for myself what is right and what is wrong. And that one sin, as she gave it to Adam, plunged us into the abyss of the devil's camp. And now Jesus came and died on Calvary to pay the ransom. But don't mistake the paid ransom at the cross for redemption. Ransom and redemption happen at different times. They mean different things. Ransom is a part of redemption. But they're not the same thing. Ransom is when the price is paid. But if you're still imprisoned, if you're still a slave to the devil, even though the ransom has been paid, you've not yet experienced redemption. And if you've not experienced redemption, you can't be saved. It's like I have a million dollars in the bank. But if I never go to the bank and draw out that money, it will never do me any good. I can't spend that money in the bank until I go to the bank and claim it and receive it. And it's mine. Now the glorious, wonderful, thriving in the desert 
is when I receive the redemption that was paid for by the Lamb's dying on the cross. Please understand. Jesus wants to come and redeem your life. There's no sin for which that redemption cannot save you. Some of you who are women have had abortions. And some of you men who are listening have encouraged that abortion. And that was murder. But there's no sin too big that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot wash away. Sin, remember, is a decision. A decision to go against the will of God. Perhaps you didn't even it was the will of God. You just had an inner sense that this is wrong. The Holy Spirit was striving with you, and yet you just continued right on down the road doing whatever it was you were doing, whether it was an abortion or whether it was fornication or whether it was adultery, having that affair, whether it's sitting down and drinking in all of the violence of the world system the video games of violence, loving the things of the professional sports and giving yourself to this. I was walking by a television set that was on and I glanced at it and it was the Kansas City Chiefs as they were playing Tennessee. And I didn't see the game, I just saw the fans men and women, husbands and wives, dancing and shouting, totally involved. And I thought to myself, what are they getting out of this? This is just flat out gladiator games. It's violence. It's wickedness. Oh, pastor, come on. It's not going to hurt if I go to a football game. What's the Holy Spirit telling you? What do the scriptures say to you about violence? A person who is normally accustomed to saying, I am saved by faith in Jesus without anything else, will be free to go about their life walking in their own culture, the church culture, the sin culture. They're welcome to just go walk that out. But in the end, they will be lost. I want to say this to you without even personally knowing the depth of what I'm saying. There is a place for us so precious, so wonderful with Jesus. There is a place of such intimacy, a place of such safety, a place of such exorbitant love and grace and mercy in the heart of Jesus for you and for me. I have 
basically given my whole life to searching after Jesus. I've told you this story before, but I'll tell you again. I was new pastor of a, a beautiful, large congregation. And at the end of the sermon, at the conclusion, it was the custom for the pastor to stand at the door and shake hands with everyone as they exited the sanctuary. And so they had directed me where I should go and stand, and people were coming to meet me for the first time. One old man tall, bald-headed like a scarecrow. He took both of my hands and his two big hands. He was probably 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, he took both of my, my hand in both of his hands and he looked me deeply in the eyes. And with tears in his eyes, he said to me, Pastor, will you tell us about Jesus? And I quickly moved him on and said, Oh, yes, yes, sir, I will teach you about Jesus. I was embarrassed by what he had said and done. And later, as I reflected on that event, I recognized that I didn't know Jesus. I knew the academics. I had my graduate degree. I knew about church history. I knew about theology. My head was full of all the information that had been stuffed into it through seminary, through undergraduate school, Greek and Hebrew. But I didn't know Jesus. I remember in college I took a class, uh, intro, to the life of Jesus. It was one of the required courses for theology students. I was eager to take that course because I wanted to know Jesus. And the teacher took us through all of the details of what had happened in Jesus' life. He took us literally through the seasons of life for Jesus. But at the end of the course, I didn't know any more about Jesus than I did at the very beginning. One day in the theology department, I was walking past a classroom and I heard a certain sound in the voice and I stopped. It caught me, caught my heart. And then I recognized the voice was Dr. Minchin. And I stood and listened. As one of the first times in my life, I heard a man talk about his love for Jesus. As I stood there, tears began to flow down my face because I recognized this man knew Jesus in a way I had never imagined knowing him. Well, I've now spent literally many, many years 
searching after Jesus. I can tell you now, I love Jesus with all my heart. I know him. He talks to me. I talk to him. And I know the more carefully I have obeyed his voice, the more carefully I have obeyed the words of Scripture. I was a television addict. I watched television. After I'd come home from preaching, I'd sit down and watch the television. I'd watch the games. I'd watch everything. Till the Holy Spirit said to me, Turn off your television. What? Turn off the television? It was my drug of choice. This happened many years ago. But when I obeyed the Holy Spirit and turned off the television, it meant also taking that new large screen Sony television out and putting it in the trash. Some people have said, you should have sold it. No. I didn't want it in the house. I didn't want the temptation even there. So I took it out and put it in the trash. My neighbor said, can I have it? Does it work? I said, of course it works. Yes, you can have it. And I helped it carry it into his house. I couldn't watch it anymore because it got in the way between me and Jesus. Now I measure everything the Holy Spirit tells me in terms of, is this from Jesus? Does it match with the scriptures? Does it open my heart more fully to his intimacy and his love and his compassion and his mercy? And I want to tell you today, Jesus is so compassionate he is so merciful. He is so kind. But he wants me to obey him. Obedience to Jesus and his commands is the way we show Jesus that we love him. Love is not a matter of just saying, I love you. Love is a matter of laying my life down for another. Love does not mean saying to your wife, I love you, honey. Could you bring me a drink? No. Love says you get up and give your wife a drink. Love says you get up and serve. You don't demand from the couch. You get up and ask, what can I get for you, honey? Do you understand? Now we come to this story in the book of Exodus. They have left behind this awesome time of singing the song of Moses, the song of redemption. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will tremble. Anguish will fill the people of Philistine. 
Oh, my. This song of redemption is awesome. Aaron's sister, Moses' sister, Miriam, takes the tambourine and the women, and they all sing unto the Lord, and they lead the dance. I wish I could have seen that. But we're going to sing it again on the other side. We're going to sing the song of redemption, the song of Moses and the Lamb. So Moses led the children of Israel out into the desert, and now they're truly in the desert. They travel for for three days, and they don't have any water left. The animals are thirsty. The people are thirsty. The children are thirsty. You can only live so long without water, and then you die. And out here in this desert, they have to learn how to thrive. Now, Moses knew about the desert. He'd spent the last 50 years taking care of sheep in a very dry and arid place. He knew when the grass would grow. He knew around which springs the grass was growing. So here he is, leading the people out into a place that he knows without the magnificent movement of his God, two million people are going to die on his hands. But with great faith, in obedience to the word of the Lord, he leads this two million people nation out into the wilderness. And there was no water. They came to Marah, and the water is bitter. And I've said to you, the desert is a bitter place. Sin is a bitter thing. Drugs, alcohol, opiates, they're bitter. Pride and anger and cutting off and judging. Oh, you're this and you're that. I'm not going to associate with you. It's kind of judgment. Demanding our rights. This kind of life is bitter. I want to thrive in the desert. And the way you thrive in the desert is by obeying the Lord God of heaven. Remember, Paul and Silas, they're in prison. They're beaten severely. Their backs are bloody. Their feet are in stocks. They can't lay down. They're miserable, physically miserable. What did they do? They begin to rejoice and sing songs of glory at midnight instead of groaning and complaining and saying, look how God has treated us. These precious men begin to worship Jesus. They praise him. You thrive in the difficulties of the desert by praising the Lord Jesus Christ and putting your trust in him. This morning I was reviewing with the Lord my past years 
things that I have said and done that have hurt people. I was looking more carefully at, at how I've related to my children and my grandchildren. And I was deeply grieved by things I've said or done. Now, I would have been utterly devastated and lost and depressed and hopeless if it were not for the grace and mercy of Jesus. But as I, as I looked at those things and I looked at other things that I've said and done that I shouldn't have said or done, I put them under the blood of Jesus. Now I've made restitution in every way I know. I've made restitution with many in my life by saying to them, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Humble pie is a wonderful, wonderful diet for a Christian to go back and make right what was wrong. Sometimes you can't. There are things I'd like to say to my precious father that I can't say because he's gone. <laughs> he's gone on to his reward. I'll see him on the other side by the grace of Jesus. But as I looked at all of those things, I just wept before the Lord. And then I remembered his grace and his mercy. I remembered how he's carried me through the years. How he's provided for me. I even was praising him for how he has provided for this radio broadcast. I mean, do you understand, year after year, I've been on this radio broadcast and God has moved in the hearts of, of people like you and many of you who are listening and has prompted you to send that one dollar, that fifteen hundred, five hundred, a thousand, five thousand, ten, twelve thousand dollars at a time. Without it, I couldn't have stayed on the air. It was Jesus moving in your heart, and you obeyed. I began to review those things and say, how could I ever doubt Jesus? But the children of Israel, they've seen the wonderful miracles of God deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen the dead Egyptian soldiers, soldiers who came after them. They have seen the wonders of God in his mercy and his kindness. And they grumble against him. They murmur against him. They take his name in vain. They come to Mara. They're angry. They try to drink the water and they can't drink it. It's bitter. Moses throws that piece of wood representing the cross of Jesus into that wood. And suddenly it becomes sweet, sweet, sweet water. You thrive in the desert by the cross of Jesus Christ. You thrive in the desert by walking in the joy of the presence of Jesus with your heart being poured out in love and compassion for others and love and gratitude to Jesus. I often say you can't make old friends you can only lose them. 
friends are very precious to me. I don't take friendship cheaply. Jesus has every reason not to be friends with me. But he is the lover of my soul. He is my champion. He is my provider. He has done everything for me. I look to the future and I see devastation on every side. It's impossible. My future is impossible. I can't begin to get through the future. But you know what? He didn't ask me to. He just said, trust me today. Trust me today. I had a phone call last night from a very precious brother. He said, God told me to tell you, you're going to have a great day tomorrow. God's going to do something for you. I knew he was right. I knew I could trust that word from the Holy Spirit through my brother to me. See, I'm walking in obedience to Jesus. I've repented of my past sins and mistakes. Things that I did that I didn't know were wrong. But now I do. And I don't do them again. So they come to Mara, the piece of wood is thrown away. And he tells them, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his degrees, decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So blessings come with obedience but salvation also comes with obedience. And then verse 27, it's so powerful, I have it underlined, I have a check mark. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped near the water. This is one of God's ways. I've experienced it time after time. Where I'll come through an experience that is especially bitter. Perhaps at no fault of my own. And then suddenly he moves me on. And I get to camp beside the palm trees and the fresh springs of water. And I have a little have a little break my wife late wife used to call them joy breaks joy breaks where the sun comes out the battle is won the attack of the enemy so bitter against us is broken by the power of prayer in the name of Jesus and our confidence in our deliverer coming 
to take care of us as we praise and we worship in the midst of the worst trauma of our lives. I preached the funeral sermon for my, my precious late wife, Jan. And some asked me, how could you preach that sermon? Your wife's funeral sermon? How could you preach that? And my answer was, she's gone to a better place. Her work is finished. I celebrate her life. I'm grateful that she was with me. Am I sad? Am I broken? Yes, I said, I'm totally broken and totally sad. But my faith is in Jesus, and he brought me through. He brought me through. Now today, some of you are at Mara. Life for you is very bitter because of finances because of sickness, because of the death of a loved one. I met a friend for lunch. His grandmother that he has spent some 50 years loving just died last week. And with a smile of victory, he said, I'll make it through. She's gone on, and she's free in Jesus. It's my turn next, and I'll go through with Jesus too. Sad, yes. Grieving, yes. Victorious, yes. Jesus brings us through these desperately hard experiences that are made much easier by our thriving in the desert with confidence in Jesus, walking in love with Jesus, walking in obedience to Jesus. Loving Jesus and obedience to Jesus are the same things. You don't love Jesus if you don't obey him. Obedience is required for a Christian to enter into salvation. Don't mistake the paying of the price at the cross with your redemption. He wants to redeem your life. He wants to give you a new life. He wants to give you new opportunities. He wants to open the windows of heaven and pour out a, such a blessing that you'll have a hard time receiving it. And it's all to his glory and for his kingdom. Oh, my brother, my sister, will you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Will you pour out the gushings of your heart before him if it's sorrow and sadness, then tell him all about it. If it's pain and anguish, then tell him all about it. And then tell him how much you love him. And let him tell you how much he loves you.
you thrive in the desert when you don't grumble, you don't murmur, you don't walk in unbelief, you walk in faith and confidence and trust. You walk with your eyes on Jesus. You don't look at the world. You don't look at the flesh. You don't look at the devil. You don't look even at your circumstances. You say, I know Jesus, and he is carrying me through. And he is. He is carrying you through. We don't like the Maras, but we love the Elams, where we have the 12 springs of water and the 70 palm trees, and we get to relax and catch some rays, a place where we can rest. Well, life is made up of bitter water and 12 springs and 70 palm trees. That's the truth. As we journey... As John Bunyan puts it, as we journey from the city of destruction through the narrow gate where we come to the cross and we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus and we go then up that hill of difficulty and down into the valley of humility through the valley of the shadow of death, we always are going to come at some point to the delectable mountains where the shepherds take care of us. That's the truth of the gospel. That's how we thrive in the desert. Let me pray for you. Almighty God, you know the days of my life and the days of my brothers' and sisters' lives. I ask, Jesus, that you would come in mighty power, that you would give us the courage and the power to obey your commands and to walk in the desert, not dying but thriving, to walk in the desert not complaining but rejoicing, walking in the desert turning our eyes away from the wickedness of the world and looking to that pillar of fire, to the glorious presence of our Almighty God. Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel coming to the end of the month and we're still several thousand dollars short of having what we need to pay for this month of radio. I'm very grateful that so many of you stepped in in the month of December and covered that December bill. I could not do it, but as I prayed and I waited upon the Lord, he said, I'm going to move and I'm going to open the way, and he did. We go month to month. This is a, a by faith. And I trust Jesus to move in your heart again. I haven't heard from some of you for some time. Please let me hear from you again. You could write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, 
Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, that address is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I'd also ask that you go to the webpage and give online. You can do that by just clicking the, the button on the webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and donate. And you can do that with your Visa or MasterCard. Don't go in debt. I don't want anybody to go in debt to give to this ministry. But I'd love to see some people do that today. It would bring me great courage. Thank you. Now I need to pray for the last minute. Lord Jesus, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would rebuke the wickedness of what's going on in our Congress. I ask, Lord, that you would put aside every lie, that you would remove those who would try to deceive. And I ask, Lord, that you would unify our country once more and that the cross would be lifted up over this nation. Lord, I ask for a standard of integrity and righteousness to come now. I ask that you would protect our president and guard his life and his spirit and give him great courage and draw his soul into yours, Jesus. Teach him about yourself, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I pray that this message has been helpful. I'll talk to you soon. Savior, through Jesus Christ.